And we are live. Welcome everybody to today's conversation. My guest today is George Connolly from One Ledger. Some of you probably know him already. And uh, yeah, today we're going to talk a little bit about China, about the recent crackdown um, on crypto. We also talked a little bit about Evergrande um, off camera already. So um, yeah, we're hopefully going to have an interesting conversation with um, yeah, or about a lot of topics regarding um, the current situation. And um, yeah, I'm interested in the conversation today because I think uh, George has probably a little bit more trust in uh, the system and uh, governments and regulators and so on that uh, than I have. So uh, <laughs> let's see, let's see where this is going. Uh, yeah, welcome, George. Good to have you. Thank you, Simon. Uh, great to be back on again. And this is a topic. I think uh, it came up partially in the last discussion that we had, where we spoke about um, regulation of cryptocurrencies. Right, so, and when we talked about CD, uh, the central bank digital currency of Jamaica and China, and yeah. Exactly. So I guess this sort of leads on from that, where China has not taken, has now taken steps, not only to, uh, uh, hamstring cryptocurrency, but toss it overboard and then try to lock it down. So, right. Yes. Do you want to give a quick rundown what the current situation is with, with crypto in China so that everybody listening knows what they're talking about? Okay. Let's just take some background information on this. And um, let's, I, I assume that most individuals understand what cryptocurrency is and that most individuals understand um, how cryptocurrencies work. Obviously, you've heard of Bitcoin and Ethereum. Now, cryptocurrency is a non-state-backed digital currency that's used for trade or investment, managed by a peer-to-peer -peer group in a deregulated um, environment. And we call that DeFi for decentralized finance. And um, usually there is no asset that underpins the currency. It's free floating based on speculation and it's driven by market forces. Bitcoin was the first one in this space and that's why it carries the highest value today and perhaps is the best known. Uh, cryptocurrencies became a big item around 2013. And since 2013, the Chinese government has put 18 different rules in place, very restrictive rules, to restrict, to suspend, to, um, to um, mitigate what they see as the risk of cryptocurrencies expanding in their markets. This new one is number 19. And number 19 may, may be the clincher. So September 24th, the Chinese government decided that cryptocurrencies are illegal. It's illegal to trade in cryptocurrencies. It's illegal to mine cryptocurrency. It's illegal to support cryptocurrency in any way. And it's illegal to use it for any transaction whatsoever. So that's the starting point. And that to date is the most draconian national uh, action taken by any 
major territory against um, cryptocurrencies as an emerging uh, fiat, global, you know, um, universal country agnostic fiat. This is the most draconian step taken so far. So that's our starting point. Yeah, let's go from there. So first of all, first of all, yeah, shout out to Trevor. Morning, Trevor. See you. <laughs> um, yeah, I think my point of view is that when we talk about uh, crypto, when we talk about uh, central bank digital currencies, when we talk about blockchain, um, I think we talk even more, or we talk more about. Well, it is more than the technology behind it. I think what we're really talking about is control and power at the end of the day. Because I think um, the main reasons why um, China in that regard uh, yeah, is cracking down so hard on, on cryptocurrencies is the reason uh, because they want to control everything. I mean, when we talk about China, it's an authoritarian regime where you have social credit scores and basically every movement of their citizens is controlled and monitored and um, therefore you also want to make sure that you control the monetary system and do not as you said uh, give it up to a decentralized system but the opposite have a centralized um, yeah, solution which makes it way easier to control and to enforce um, these uh, yeah, regulations and, and uh, things i'm not sure though if um, China is the first country because I might I think I remember that Turkey um, also um, forbid payments uh, with Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies okay. because they also had a kind of yeah problems with their monetary system and again they had yeah kind of authoritarian tendencies let's put it like that which then resulted in some economic problems and then in financial problems and uh, yeah people started to use bitcoin i think almost 10 percent of all transactions were made through uh, through bitcoin and then the government shut that down um, too and um yeah that is actually one of the reason when when we remember um, our last conversation about uh, central bank digital currencies, um, when we talked about the Jamaican one, um, why I personally, yeah, kind of hesitant or skeptical when we talk about that because of that reason, because it puts so, puts so much power and control um, in one entity, in one's hands, and is kind of the opposite of the idea of a decentralized um, finance system. Therefore, um, yeah, I think, it was just a matter of time for China to crack down even more because otherwise they would lose control more or less. All right, agreed. I mean, um, on the subject of Turkey, I said the first major economy. I don't know if we put Turkey in the realm of yeah, the major economy <laughs> being able to influence the world by their decision-making. That's right, that's right. But um, let's look at the pros and cons of this for a minute. And let's look at the pros and cons from the side of a citizen in China to start, or rather the government of China. Why would the government of China crack down on cryptocurrencies? Um, the Chinese government is at an advanced stage of having the 
one in a ubiquitous digital currency in the marketplace. What's a digital currency? That's the CBDC for, that's the central bank regulated and issued digital currency for the Republic of China and obviously all the other territories where the one is the single currency. For the last, um, since 2013, with the proliferation of digital currencies and also systems like Alipay by Tencent, etc., um, it has sort of set a platform where Chinese consumers have become very comfortable using digital currency. So non-cash payment for transactions. With the wide-scale wide launch of their digital currency, Alipay and all the other digital platforms and cryptocurrency becomes competition against digital currency. The payment platforms going through the big tech firms are somewhat regulated. But you can see that China has been clamping down on big tech firms because they think that they're getting too big and too independent. Or at least that's my interpretation. And now we have a crackdown on cryptocurrency as a form of payment in its most universal form that we've seen, where it's not only you can't use it, but IP addresses associated with it have been shut down. The firms that mine cryptocurrency have been shut down. Anyone who hosts um, cryptocurrency shut down. And even expatriates um, who trade in cryptocurrencies to Chinese citizens could also be sanctioned. So this is a most comprehensive step. And the only reason for that is clearing the way for their digital currency to be the um, primary platform to be used for, for transactions. So a regulated CBDC and not as an investment tool. So that's number one. So it gives them, and obviously a regulated CBDC has all those issues that you spoke to. There is no privacy. Right. Everything, every transaction can be seen. Every transaction can be tracked. Now, some people will say that's great. Some people will say that's not so good. Okay. Next step, um, mining in China. Uh, as for those who are familiar, blockchain cryptocurrencies require a mining platform to make coins. And you would have heard around the world that the mining activity generates a, a phenomenal amount of energy. So it consumes energy like small cities, like coal grasses. Okay. So basically, in order to mine effectively, your energy consumption is going to spike exponentially. And now there is a shortage of gaming hardware because the gaming hardware is the best hardware used to mine. And you have kids 12 years old, you know, who do it as a hobby and make $10,000, $15,000 a month. And then you have in China, in Dubai, in Iceland, in Ukraine, um, throughout Eastern Europe, you have individuals who, or companies rather, who have set up corporate 
Bitcoin and cryptocurrency mining platforms that mine a large percentage of the world's cryptocurrency. China was doing about 40% up to a year ago, and that was a concern. Mm -hmm. All these crypto mining form, firms have now been shut down. So that creates um, an opportunity from two viewpoints. One, when you shut these farms down, where is that business going to go? What's the price of being able to mint coins based on that? So we've seen a dip um, initially because of this in cryptocurrency costs, um, in cryptocurrency yields, etc. But will, is that going to lead to a spike? Because now being able to mine coins has become so much harder now that you've taken out a big slice of it. Um, and is that a part of, and the Chinese delegation has just come back from the United Nations, where they've said that they will drive their greenhouse gas consumption um, down, that they will try to become, to lead in the green space. And for them, this will satisfy two factors. One, it keeps their digital currency as the primary item in that CBDC space, and it shuts down farms that help to support the competition. So that's a pro and a con. The other thing is that this isn't gonna go away. So just because you've said that you're gonna ban um, cryptocurrencies, it doesn't mean that investors who have millions of dollars, in fact, China has billions of dollars in cryptocurrency, that they're suddenly gonna give it up. What it means is that two things will happen. It's either gonna go underground in China, which it already is, because as most of you know, China can't host exchanges or anything like that. So you have exchange hosting companies in Hong Kong. Laos now is trying to do some stuff there. Malaysia, Macau, Singapore, etc., who host exchanges that Chinese citizens use. So that will go further on the ground. Or you will start to see flight where there's migration of talent becoming digital nomads into countries like Barbados, Jamaica, Dubai, etc., that embrace cryptocurrencies and crypto technology. So that may be some of the things that you may see. So uh, let's, let's talk about those things for a minute, but it's not going to go away at all. So I don't think anyone in China believes that now that we've passed number 19 in terms of the laws that they've had against cryptocurrency, mm -hmm. that it will suddenly go away. But certainly what we're going to see is those becoming gray market or black market activities, exchanges moving to jurisdictions that are friendly. And this also shows that DeFi will start to work as it's supposed to work outside of the government, right. unregulated, right. Um, with anonymity. And, um, and, and that doesn't mean that everyone who uses cryptocurrency is a criminal. It just means that there are some people who prefer to speculate with a currency and trading the currency where everything isn't taxed or sanctioned or regulated by the government. So they're interesting. Yeah, I think it's an interesting 
experiment probably that we are seeing there on the one hand, the government regulated central bank digital currency, and then on the other hand, um, yeah, the decentralized version with Bitcoin, because correct me if I'm wrong, but for Bitcoin or any other cryptocurrency to work, we do not need an exchange. You and I, when we met physically, we can exchange a wallet or USB stick or sit down with a laptop and the cable and can do a transaction without a third party involved. I think that's the beauty Correct. of it, right? Correct. The thing that the only challenge with the Bitcoin and Ethereum in particular is that as a speculator, the movement in terms of investment, return on investment on those coins is no longer as great as some of the altcoins that you would see. So you've got several altcoins that you can do on a swap that um, will give you um, 100% in a year. The return could be 100% in a year. You're not going to see 100% return on Bitcoin in a year now. You're not going to see 100% return on Ethereum in a year now. But correct, those platforms do not require either a centralized exchange or a decentralized exchange in order to offer. You can just pass from wallet, from one wallet to the next, right? and there are platforms that allow for that. But this is a great opportunity for other countries in the cryptocurrency space to now woo Chinese crypto investors. This is also a great opportunity for anyone who has um, low energy cost to start mining farms because there's going to be a, a lot of space available for mining in the crypto space. Mm. But I think what we're also going to see is a move from proof of work to proof of stake. So rather than having to mint coin through that process, you'll be start, starting to see um, the minting of coins by consensus, where either 51% or 66% decide they're gonna mint coins rather than have this huge energy burn, you know, that comes with solving the algorithms associated with mm -hmm. proof of work. So that the first one to the finish line is a one who wins. So that's something that uh, may also happen. And that is better for the environment all around and just that the, the whoever controls the platforms needs to decide how they set the rules for how the tokens operate on their platforms. So it moves from proof of work to proof of stake. Mm -hmm. So it's just consensus based. So that becomes a real DeFi type platform as well. Have we seen um, any major changes since last week in terms of, as you said, I think a year ago, 40% of the, the Bitcoin mining activities uh, came from China. Did that change? It's only five days. Last week? It's only five days. So I, have, I haven't heard of any changes, okay. any changes just yet. But um, Ethereum has been on a, on, um, on a path for about a year now, where they're trying to move from proof of work to proof of stake. 
So they've been on that path now for a few years trying to get that done. Was that the, the forking that they did recently? Was that one of the reasons? No, I think that was unrelated. But okay. they but what they have to do is that they have to change the way that their platforms, um, that their entire platform works in order to do that. But that's gonna be that's gonna be interesting because I, like many others, believe that Ethereum has more value than Bitcoin. Bitcoin has become an investment or, but I think Ethereum is actually a functional tool. And uh, Ethereum is the, um, Ethereum and EVM is the tool that actually drives smart contracts. And smart contracts are going to be um, the future of blockchain. Not cryptocurrency, the two are, <laughs> so. So remember, China is getting off the crypto, is trying to get off the cryptocurrency bus. But on the other end, China is trying to fuel the blockchain space. Because with AI and Internet of Things, where they're trying to lead, they have built blockchain technology into almost all their systems in that space. So, so China wants to continue to lead in the blockchain space, but they want to get off the cryptocurrency bus. And cryptocurrency runs on mm -hmm. blockchain. So, but, so we got to separate the two for the purpose of this conversation. Right? So they still very much want to lead in the blockchain space, and that's not going to change. So we've seen greater investment in China in blockchain, while greater regulation or laws being passed against the use of cryptocurrencies. Why do you think, or why do you say um, that they push the, the blockchain development in China? Because from my understanding, again, that would be kind of the decentralized nature of the blockchain technology is in a lot of areas kind of detrimental to a lot of the goals that the Chinese government or Chinese economy has. So what would be use cases? Or why are they doing that? Why is China doing that, in your opinion? Well, there, there are two things. As you know, um, and the, the, the first point that I make on this is that from President Xi himself, okay? So he expressed a desire for China to be the leader in IoT, in AI, and in blockchain. So that comes as a quote directly from him in his last speech. Okay. So we have a good source to believe that. So we have a good source. <laughs> So you want to capitalize on the benefits of blockchain without crypto. So all of those platforms, artificial intelligence, the internet of things, right? and blockchain itself as being an unhackable, immutable platform for transactions, all of those things strengthen IoT and AI. But cryptocurrency, he sees, as being a poor byproduct of blockchain so i want to control the currency but i want um but i want a free market that grows exponentially on the platform that runs the currency so um and think about it in terms of logistics china is the manufacturer of the world 
in terms of AI and Internet of Things being used for logistics, the shipping industry is seeing an explosion of um, smart chain initiatives um, and of smart contract initiatives driven by blockchain that handle everything from the product being kept at the same temperature from um, source to destination and being insured because of that, that making sure that some drugs or electronics or um, sensitive materials are not tampered with at all during the journey. So there's no tamper. There's a QR code on each item as it goes across. It's scanned on both sides, so it's tamper-free. In terms of letters of credit, where the banking system is using LCs um, for new trade, this is now all driven by smart contracts or has potential to be driven by smart contracts, which is driven, as you know, by um, blockchain. And China wants to be the best logistics company in the world. They want to be the best financial company in the world. And they want to be the best technology company in the world. And in order to be successful in that space in the future, blockchain and the unique characteristics that blockchain brings to the table have to be a part of it. And now, cryptocurrency, or rather digital currencies, can be a part of it, but it's not going to be unregulated digital currencies. Hmm. It'll be or digital currency. So rather than using Ether or using um, anything else, you'll use or token. Besides the um, the energy and the speed problem of Bitcoin, because that's what I'm hearing basically all the time when we talk about using Bitcoin as a currency and not as a speculation asset, or, or maybe you can call it an investment, um, mm -hmm. depending on the viewpoint. Um, what is, or do you think we will see um, Bitcoin continuing or yeah, developing into a currency that is really accepted? Or do you say that the technological flaws or the, the structure of the of Bitcoin itself is so mediocre compared to, for example, Ethereum or maybe future coins that, that are in development right now um, that we will see something different um, evolving? Or do you think uh, Bitcoin is here to stay? I think Bitcoin is here to stay as a investment tool. Okay, so not I, as currency necessarily. No, I, mm. I don't see it as a currency. Actually, um, when I put on my coned hat, <laughs> the star is going around. I actually see more and more economies moving to have their own um, regulated digital currencies. Look, um, and it's, and you have to get past the euphoria of being able to trade in a global agnostic currency that has the same rate across the world. So that is really an exciting prospect. So imagine if the United Nations were to put out a digital currency 
Do you mean digital currency or cryptocurrency? Just to make sure we talk well, about the same thing. I, I said digital currency, not a cryptocurrency. Okay. <laughs> so imagine if the United Nations were to put up a digital currency. Mm -hmm. And as a citizen of the world, everyone has a wallet that they can use. Okay. Mm -hmm. And everything that we buy or trade in that wallet, I don't go through any middleman at all. You have your wallet, I have mine, and we just trade. I want to buy something, I buy directly from the vendor, okay? And I pay mm -hmm. the vendor directly. And that's basically what we have with the cryptocurrencies of the day. Middleman is gone. Right. No, no regulator, no rules. The only thing is trade. Unfortunately, the world has proved time and time again that they are not prepared to handle that. When there are goods and services being traded that can be dangerous, illegal, or have a, um, a negative impact on society. That's why countries have rules in place. So if you buy Kobe beef out of Japan, and you want to import it into the UK, you have to pay a tax on it. The government wants to make sure that local um, dairy farmers or beef farmers in the UK have an advantage over imported beef. Um, how do you enforce that if you don't regulate currency, the movement of currency? Okay. If you don't regulate the movement of the product, so when the product comes and it's being paid for, if the claim is it's paid already, mm -hmm. how do you guarantee the price in order to work the tax if you can't see the transaction? Vehicles, you mentioned that earlier, in Germany in particular. But wouldn't that be easy because I'm the government and I know if you already paid the tax for the cold beef or for any product that wants to enter but, the country? Why wouldn't what, what, I know that I can look in my wallet, my government tax IRS wallet, whatever you want to call it. All right, but that's if you can see. If you have a cryptocurrency environment mm -hmm. where no one can see what you've paid, I've transferred from you to me, and that's between only the two of us. The product arrives, what's the tax rate? We know what the tax rate is, but it's based on a baseline price. Unless we can see the baseline price, we can't set the figure. Okay, no, I get what you're saying. So then it becomes speculative mm -hmm. for the government to say, okay, this beef usually costs a thousand bucks. You've paid a hundred bucks for it. How'd you do that? So we understand that our usual tax rate is $14, is 14% on a thousand bucks, but you've only paid a hundred. Do we do the same or? What do we do? So okay. the government has to be able to see the price between the parties. And then it said it's tax rate based on that baseline. And the whole process works that way. Vehicles, because everything is based on precedent. And also, if you're buying a product, and let's say you're buying a product, and the source is, even though, you may buy a product from a local source, 
but it's imported. There are fees that local transactions attract, like GST, etc., that foreign transactions may not attract, or vice versa. Mm -hmm. So the government has to know the source of the product, the price that you've paid, in order to set whatever tariffs or taxes or income terms they have. And this is where cryptocurrency muddies the water. So when it's commodity-based product that's being moved around. Now, if it's services, nobody cares. If I do a consulting job for you and you pay me a million euro, I just need to explain where I got a million euro from because it's IP. So IP makes it different. So government, and look, and if you look at the world map and look at the percentage of trade, which is now moved to services, rather than commodity base, you see that services keeps growing and growing. And government loses out on all the tax revenue on services if they're associated with cryptocurrencies. And you will always notice that cryptocurrency um, enthusiasts usually play services and not commodities. And there isn't, and there's no secret to that. It's in their interest that when they do a job that requires IP, they pay as little tax as possible by having it sent through a channel that can't be tracked. But that's not good for commodity. That's not good for manufacturers. So Mm -hmm. we always got to think about the whole picture. Now, I love cryptocurrency. I work in the space, as you know. And cryptocurrency is not going to go away. But I can see how cryptocurrency use could cause problems in an economy. And I could see it actually bringing some economies down. Right. Yeah. And and governments, I think that's... uh, So for government, government it's a real concern. Now, think about... Uh, think about governments that have poor fiscal systems. It's a big problem. China doesn't have that problem. But what they're ensuring is that there isn't leakage. Now, if you were to offer a completely capitalist market where the government provides no goods or services, the government provides no roads, no housing, no transport, etc., no infrastructure. No infrastructure. Zero taxes, zero healthcare, zero social network, etc. Then have cryptocurrency. People can do what they like. Build your own roads. All right. Anarchy. Yeah, yeah. That's and that's what I'm trying to balance in my head because on the one hand, um, I'm a big, I don't know, liberal guy. Whatever. I think the less power a government or whatever state entity has uh, the better because when we look at history at the moment you give people too much power that always ends in disaster that's just um, human nature so um, I kind of emphasize the idea to say hey we have a decentralized finance system and the only besides the technology aspect the only barrier here is acceptance when you and I and the rest of the world uh, accept whatever kind of cryptocurrency or whatever token or whatever yeah, currency like the US dollar that we have right now, um, 
then we use that and we are able to trade, to buy stuff and, and sell stuff. And no government, as you said, uh, can really control that. And we're completely independent, which has its benefits. Because when we look at the uh, financial ecosystem right now, there are basically a few global banks that control all the cross-border payments. And you have to go through them um, if you want to do business. And these were out of business. Governments uh, would lose control. Um, all things that I would say, hey, more power to the people. But as you said, on the other hand, um, I mean, there's a reason why we have taxes in an ideal world to, as you said, to finance the infrastructure, to build roads, to build the healthcare system, to make sure there is police when whatever happens. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of between the, the seats here because, um, as you said, both extremes are not what I want. Um, so yeah, yeah, that's that's really my my position right now. On the one end, I see all the, the benefits look that a decentralized system way. can can give it. Look at it this way, Father. Um, how do banks make income? Then? How if do money? Uh, how do banks make money? Yeah. Yeah. Besides fees, it's primarily. Um, uh, duration transformation. That's that's how they make make money. Correct. So banks banks make funds on what they call a spread. Exactly. So the spread is um, loans, mortgage payments, and services exactly. that they offer. Right. That's the only way banks make money. Um, savings don't make any cash for a bank. But savings are the things that they're able to use to issue loans, et cetera. So that yeah, and that's how they make the money, through the spread. Exactly. Right. So I right. lent so, the money short-term savings, put it in a savings account, and then they use that money to give you a credit to buy a house or finance a business and whatever. And the spread exactly. is how they make money. Right. Exactly. So they make the money on the spread. So um, look at it this way. Savings in commercial banks across the world are going up. So with savings going up, what we're seeing is interest rates coming down. So um, a, a lot of Caribbean territories now have given, instead of having a fixed interest rate on savings, the banks are now able to float, just like in the developed markets. Yeah. So currently, the rate here in the Car in a lot of Caribbean territories is like 0.25%. So come to the club. <laughs> <laughs> I think in uh, Germany we have we have negative interest rates now. So if you bring money to the bank, you have to actually pay them a fee so that they uh, yeah right. take care of it. Now, when you look at the fees associated with having the funds in the bank, that 25 basis points that you're talking about. Mm -hmm. When you look at the fees associated with that, at the end of each year, you end up paying the bank more than you receive an interest rate through fees. You look at interest, interest gains and net that against fees and it becomes negative. Mm -hmm. So the same, so the same thing applies. And we're not talking about inflation yet. <laughs> no, <laughs> correct, <laughs> correct. Yeah. Now, um, if banks weren't offering services like point-of-sale merchant services, 
Okay, so they give a vendor, a, a retail store, a little device, you know, to allow them to pass MasterCard and Visa card transaction through into it. If banks weren't, if a lot of banks weren't doing that, and were just relying on their commercial loan portfolio, or their mortgage portfolio, or their home and auto portfolio, a lot of commercial banks would probably die. And that's why we see banks continue to contract their retail services and their customer-facing platforms are going more and more automated. I was in um, Amsterdam um, last year, and I went into ING Bank, and there's one customer service agent in the bank, and that's it. Everything else is automated, no matter what you want to do. You want a loan, sit by this machine, <laughs> pull up this form. You want this, you want to transfer, do this, transfer to that one guy. And we're talking maybe 2,000 square feet of banking space. And just a, uh, uh, a slew of ABM machines, one guy. And we are seeing more and more services being driven online. When we move to CBDCs, where I can send cash directly to you, from my wallet to yours, not going through the banking system, but through a central bank-based platform. The bank loses all the fees on that transaction, including the merchant fees, the equipment fees, point of service fees, et cetera. But the merchant gets almost 100% of their funds rather than losing 2%, 3%, 2%, 3%, whatever the fees that the bank charges, mm-hmm. and having to wait 48 hours to get it in their account. So the gain is it's in the account immediately, and you get almost 100% of it because the fee is significantly less. That's good for the consumer, but that's bad for the bank. So I, then I put on my coned hat with the stars going around. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> I see banks getting smaller and smaller. Mm-hmm and becoming savings and loans. And, and, and I also see specialized firms. So specialized firms for doing auto, auto loans. You want to buy a car, you go through us. Don't go to your bank. You want to buy a house, you go through a mortgage firm that specializes in mortgage firms. Savings and loans will disappear. So where do you put your money in the future? Because it doesn't make sense putting your money into a bank and having to pay them to secure it. So what will that look like in terms of a CBDC structure in the future? And what is China thinking about that in terms of their whole ecosystem? Um, Chinese banks are set up primarily for um, corporate investment, as you know. And their corporate investment is heavy to fuel the economy. But individual investors, what will that look like in the future? And how will, you know, from families who want to start and save towards a goal to grandma and grandpa who've worked all their lives and, um, and have a retirement plan set up to individuals who want to save for their kids to go to college, etc. What does that look like in the future? And how can blockchain help in that space? What is that going to look like? 
And that's the thing that I can't see far enough down the road. But I know that banks are losing money. Yeah. So if you look at the platforms that they're working, they make money on um, mortgage payments because everybody has to live somewhere. So the mortgage portfolio is good. But the mortgage portfolio can't um, fund every other service that they offer. So you're going to start to see services disappear based on their ability to be profitable for the banking institution. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I mean, when we look at Europe, um, basically all the banks are yeah, laying people off, reducing the square foot uh, of the you know, of the physical locations um, and so on. So that's definitely a trend we're already seeing. And I think, um, as you said, cryptocurrency, blockchain and so on will only accelerate that. I want to give a quick shout out to Stacy. Stacy says, wow, this is so much to learn. Indeed, we're all <laughs> learning here. Uh, thank you, Simon and George, for educating us. I really appreciate it. Yeah, um, really glad to hear that it's helpful. Um, if that's the case for everybody listening or watching, yeah, uh, hit the like button, share it with everybody that you think can benefit from it. And if you haven't done so as yet, make sure yeah, to connect with George and me on LinkedIn. And of course, um, make sure to subscribe for the YouTube channel and uh, yeah, hit that bell notification thing to make sure that you get notified when we do these kind of discussions uh, in the future. So back to topic. Um, banking, yeah, I'm, for me, the question or question for you, what do you think? Um, I, I totally agree that we will see um, banks become less or more and more irre irrelevant. I don't know how fast that will go and, and uh, the, the scale of it, but I think, um, or I hope that we will see uh, yeah, a little bit more um, power distribution, call it, let's call it that. But do you think, um, back to your example with, let's say, the United Nations, meaning on a really big scale, on a, on a global, on a planetary scale, um, do you think, first of all, it would be possible? And then second of all, it would make sense to have a global currency? And then the question, the second question would be, do you think it would make more sense to have that as a central bank based system or um, as a cryptocurrency, meaning decentralized system? Because I think let's go 100 years down the line. I think we will sooner or later see some I don't know, planet Earth, empire, <laughs> and Elon Musk is our leader. I don't know, <laughs> some, some, something like that. So I think sooner or later we will see, because it just it's expensive for a country to have uh, their own currency maybe at some point in time. Um, yeah, what do you think about that? Is that completely, again, I also have a hat or a crystal bowl in front of me right now and then speculating a little bit. But uh, yeah, to put it on record, what, what do you think is a more valuable or more yeah, reasonable uh, technology for, a, let's say, global scale uh, currency financial system, if that's possible at all. All right. So I think we have to back up for a bit and look at <laughs> CBDCs um, from two viewpoints. Um, first thing, what is a CBDC? So we've got that covered. So let's look at a retail CBDC, which is me versus and you. So this is domestic transactions 
quick between you and me, I think that's fine. Where it becomes tricky is the other discussion that we had where we talk about um, cross-border transactions now. Right, exactly. All right? Because there's a lot of legal um, steps that underpin cross-border transactions. You being able to own assets in the U.S. as a German citizen may be a challenge. So I may sell you an asset using an NFT for a condo that I own. Mm-hmm. And you own the NFT for the condo, but there is no record in the United States that you are actually the owner of this condo. Right. right? So we don't have the conveyance and the legal documents to support it, etc. So one of the first things that we have to do is that the legal structure that supports cross-border transactions has to be the same. So we have to have some sort of agreement on that. So there's got to be a parallel in terms of how we do it. And that is where things get tricky. <laughs> um, but why couldn't the NFT just sit, whoever owns this NFT is the owner of that condo? And if everybody on the planet agrees that NFTs are a good thing, then problem solved? It, or am I naive here? <laughs> Probably. <laughs> the NFT could say that, but um, the key part that you said, everyone has to agree. So if there is no agreement, um, that's the place. I mean, when you're doing contract law, one of the things that they tell you that you have to have, you have to have three elements. You have to have offer, you have to have acceptance, and you have to have consideration. And consideration is usually in law. So it means if they say that in order for you to be the owner of um, a property, you have to have the physical title deed and that's all you need, then that's what the rules that would apply. So the NFT has to support the physical title deed. If in another jurisdiction they say that you have to have conveyance, which is which goes through an escrow process, if there is no escrow process, then there's no conveyance and the title never passes from one to the other through a regulator. So the thing is that we talk about is the acceptance. So as long as we accept that this is the rules that we play by, then we're good. All right. And we can use the NFT for that purpose. Mm-hmm. And the NFT can underpin all the escrow rules or whatever rules are in place. And we go from there. Right. So that's good. So, but what we are seeing, I mean, China has been developing their digital currency since 2014. Now remember, blockchain and cryptocurrency exploded onto the world stage in 2013. The very next year, the Chinese government set up a committee to explore a digital currency for China. They are fast. Okay. (laughs) Mm -hmm. That's happened. Okay. And that's happened. Um, The first pilot program that they had uh, was 2014. Like I said, it great gained a lot of traction in 2020. And they announced that they were testing a prototype in 2020. And remember, the physical launch was um, the beginning of this year in Chuzhou. They, in 2021, January of this year, they did a proof of concept and they launched it. One city, digital currency, 
only thing being used. Okay. Okay. Didn't know that. As legal tender, complete? As legal tender. Mm, okay. okay. So do your so the Chinese are way ahead on this. Mm. Sweden, as you know, put out the e krona. Right? And they did that also, pilot of 2020, and then February 21, I think, mm -hmm. was when they launched it. Bahamas put out their sand dollar in 2019. The adoption on that hasn't been as good. The Eastern Caribbean area did the DXCD through the local firm bit that they worked mm -hmm. with. But that has been more an investment grade type instrument than a transactional instrument. Marshall mm -hmm. Islands put out a sovereign token so, and we, we, and there, there are now about 14 to 18 other territories that are looking at proof of concept for a CBDC. And now we heard of Jamaica who launched mm -hmm. it. Now, when we're looking at wide scale adoption, we have to look at what China does. First thing, mass adoption happens when people get comfortable with a concept. So we are all comfortable now with using credit cards and debit cards for transactions. Okay. Mm -hmm. And um, educating consumers how to use um, a wallet then is the next step. Domestic use and then international use, like international use, like I said earlier. The interesting thing is. Cryptocurrency has been given such a bad name that you say, proceed with caution. So there's this caution sign over every cryptocurrency transaction. You don't know who you're doing business with. You don't know where the money is coming from. Because it's not regulated, all the AML, FACTA, CRS rules don't apply. Um, is it tax-free? Is it this? So you've got all these rules that scare the crap out of people. Mm. Um, if I can say crap on the stage. Yeah, <laughs> in terms of using cryptocurrencies. So cryptocurrencies will become a lot more uh, friendly in terms of mass adoption where central banks support. So if a central bank supports it's, um, either an independent currency like a Bitcoin, you will see greater adoption. If a central bank um, underpins its, its, uh, its own CBDC, you will see greater adoption. But the thing is, fiat is trust. When we hold a bill in our hands, the only thing that makes that bill legal tender is the fact that we know it is issued and supported and regulated by the central bank or the government. That's the only thing. And we know that with every currency, and that's how we've been taught, with the whole fiat system. CBDCs break that mold. Sorry, cryptocurrencies break that mold completely. Right. How do we trust, how do we know to trust Bitcoin and Ethereum? So I take $10,000 I buy Ethereum and then I use it for some other purpose. How do I know that I'm buying Ethereum? Who am I buying it from? Who is it regulated by? What are the controls? These are the things that the DeFi market hits 
but these are the things that spur adoption. So I think we are uh, a while away from the wide scale use or the wide scale adoption of independent, um, decentralized, DeFi based cryptocurrencies as a means of um, transaction for everyday uh, operations. Mm -hmm. it, it, it will continue to be um, a service base, um, small space, niche market um, tool for transactions. Like we pay all of our staff in, uh, in crypto because that's how they want to be paid. Um, usually it's a USDT or a Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. um, but there are some staff members who want um, fiat, <laughs> you know. Mm -hmm. But if you're in a business, you, you need to be able to use it in the space. And as a speculative tool, it's tremendous. Um, the gains you can get, like if you invested in Bitcoin back in 2015, a thousand bucks, that's probably equal to, you know, a million bucks today. So the returns that you can get, but once we see regulation come into play, those returns will go away. So those altcoins and, and cryptocurrencies that are independent will become, will, will remain speculative, but everything else will be go mainstream in terms of having them move around. So I think that's, I think that's the path that the world is on. It cannot be the wild, wild west in terms of cryptocurrencies being used to run economies. Hmm. Cannot be. But don't you think that it, well, a lot of the attraction for cryptocurrency comes especially from economies or countries um, that do not have access to the financial markets um, right now? And as, as we said earlier, as you said earlier, um, the global economy is moving more and more into the services space and the global GDP is more services than commodities by now, maybe. Um, so why, what stops people or from, from using that? Because if it's accepted, if I know when I get paid in Bitcoin or Ethereum or whatever uh, cryptocurrency we're talking right now, the only not the only but the main hesitancy for most people in the world is probably right now besides the fluctuation and volatility and, and all that stuff that i cannot really use it in my day-to-day -day life i cannot really buy anything um, i cannot really pay for anything with that um but but as soon as that changes let's look at el salvador where it becomes legal tender but that's not even necessary when i can buy a software or pay for a software or whatever that I receive anyway online or for a service that someone programs or builds some, some IP or some, some software for me. And I know I can pay that person or that company in cryptocurrency, then just because of that fact, it has some intrinsic value, if you want to call it like that, because we can use it to, to pay. Um, so do you think we will see a kind of shadow financial cryptocurrency market system or yeah because I'm, I'm not sure if how we can 
make these two worlds live together because either in, in, in my worldview, it's still like either, okay, the, the de decentralized um, approach kind of wins uh, on, on the long term, um, or we will still have um, regulation and um, yeah, some centralized power that, that controls or works as some kind of regulator or, or monitoring platform or referee or whatever you want to call it. Um, but I have a hard time to imagine a world where both systems, or maybe all three systems, meaning fiat, CBDC, and uh, cryptocurrency, exist. Actually, I think that is what we're going to have. We're going to have a hybrid system. Okay, the, so all three. The genie of cryptocurrency is not going back in the box. Right. That's right. where to stay. Right. Central banks understanding the ease of use and the utility that cryptocurrencies have will adopt their own CBDCs. I think we're going to see that. I think that's inevitable. Mm -hmm. And then fiat is going to be around for a while too, simply because there's going to be a large cohort that is slow to adopt Absolutely. or unable to adopt. So there, there are two interesting things that you said just now. Um, and you spoke to El Salvador one. And El Salvador basically has a failed financial system. So because they don't have a proper regulatory financial system, they have adopted Bitcoin as the easiest path to bring in equity to transactions. Yeah. Um, I think you may see the same thing in countries like Zimbabwe. Um, I, I know for sure in Venezuela, there were a lot of issues with currency in Venezuela. So there was a move away from the, um, from the local currency and into cryptocurrencies in order to get basic goods and services. And um, in Nigeria, and Kenya, um, to some extent, this was also an issue. So you've had phone companies um, working with Uber, and in Nigeria and Kenya, you know, you have M-Pesa, et cetera, where they have um, either constructs or similar um, products like cryptocurrencies that they move the same way. You have a wallet, I have a wallet, and now, that's happening. So Nigeria, even though they banned cryptocurrencies, is now looking at doing their own CBDC. Mm -hmm. So taking a very similar report to China. So Naira is going to be a digital currency. And again, they have a disparate, um, even though the numbers are used, it's spread all over the country. It's difficult for the financial regulatory system to support them. And it's very difficult for transactions um, to happen. So rather than get a, 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 a sort of overnight improvement on the regulatory system, they've gone towards a digital platform and it seems to be working. So you can even buy food and drink on the street using your phone, just going um, from one user to the next. So I think we're going to see all three because there are some people who don't have access to the technology to support digital currencies. 
So they will continue to use cash or uh, some other system. Central banks in regulated countries in particular, or, or rather countries with properly developed um, financial systems, um, they will want to add a service as something, as we see millennials and generation zeros, etc., who have two major issues. One, the environment, and two, um, government oversight or regulation over their currency. So they want easy use and they want cleaner economy. Those are the two major issues for that. So I think we will start to see central banks being able to offer those services easily. And um, that will help that whole movement to progress. But we are looking at a hybrid environment for something. I think that's that's what I see. All three will have to learn to coexist. Okay. But but independent cryptocurrencies will be used as more as an investment tool again, mm -hmm. rather than a um, a trading tool. And this may bring some oversight in terms of what rules apply to investment um, instruments, because basically Bitcoin and Ethereum and the others. They're just assets right now. How do you put them on, um, if you're doing a financial statement for the bank and you've got a billion dollars in Bitcoin, mm -hmm. do you actually put on your bank statement as part of your asset portfolio that you have a billion dollars in Bitcoin? And will the bank accept it as security for anything or any financial institution? or if it were in Ethereum or OLT or some other altcoin, how do we migrate that asset that you've gained and put it into mainstream that you can use it? Right? If um, unless the vendor that you're working with doesn't take it, how do we do that? So if you're in that ecosystem, then it's fine because everyone in that ecosystem trades in that currency. Exactly. But if as soon you as you want to leave it. Yeah. Exactly. If you, you want to move... swap it into another currency or in fiat or whatever. Yeah. Exactly. That's... Exactly. So... There, there, there are some exchanges that allow it, uh, you know, but how do you, how does that become a mainstream asset that you can then trade and use and leverage in order to do things? Mm -hmm. So if you're in the ecosystem, great. If you're not, it becomes tricky. And that's basically the situation that we have with China right now, because it's so locked up to the outside world uh, that you basically cannot yeah, change your, what's it pronounced, renminbi, I think that's, I don't know, <laughs> but the Chinese currency, uh, yeah, it's really hard to get it out of Why? the country. Yeah. So, sorry? Why? Oh, okay. Um, so which then, or maybe, maybe I'm too pessimistic in that regard, but when I think um, about the central bank uh, controlled digital currency, um, and I think with, with China, we have that example right now, what stops a government slash central bank to say, okay, George um, has a million 
currency X on um, his account. We don't like George anymore because his social credit score, whatever. We hit the delete button and all your money is gone or we hit the send to the government button and all the money is now owned by the government because at the moment, yeah, when the government mints the currency or yeah, programs it and therefore controls it, I'm not a developer, but I don't see how we could prevent that, right? It gives all power to the central bank or the government in that scenario, or am I missing anything right now? Well, I think you're mi mi missing quite a lot. Um, if, if, a bank if a government passes a digital currency, basically what you're saying is that rather than fiat, okay, mm -hmm. they're issuing a digital currency to the val same value as fiat. Right which operates on this platform. So the same rules apply to fiat. The, there is no government in the world, well, sorry, there is no judiciary in the world where the, that would allow a government to arbitrarily take funds from your account um, simply mm. because there is access. I mean, we've heard stories about that, but those are in authoritarian states right. where <laughs> where um, the rule of law is, you know, uh, a flag. So it blows this <laughs> way today, it blows that way tomorrow. Exactly. That, that's not the way that judicial systems really work. And um, most countries pass laws that support CBDCs. Here in Barbados, there's quite a comprehensive document in draft that the central bank has put out, which is going to be passed in the House which looks at electronic transactions and digital currencies, how they sit, how they work, how they use, et cetera. And basically the same thing as fiat. So right now, if you ask the bank to see your funds in your account, you don't see physical dollars. You see a number. That's correct. You'll see the same thing. If you're making a transfer to me, you go online to your banking app, or you ask your uh, the account manager of the bank to do a transfer for you. No physical cash leaves. Mm -hmm. So the same settlement rules that are in place for fiat will be in place for the CBDC. The only difference between the two, the regulations are all the same. The only difference between the two is that the country doesn't spend uh, cash on actually having a physical currency one. So there's a tremendous amount of value saved there. And there's a lot of security gains in doing that as well. Okay. So you don't have to have huge safes. You don't have to have cash in transit security because there is no cash in transit anymore. You don't have to have it done in Sweden and then flown all over the world, et cetera. So the physical currency disappears or shrinks. And then you just have the banking system that's ones and zeros. So if you got a million dollars, you got a million dollars. And if you and, and you don't get currency, it sits on a wallet that you can use to trade. So all of the rules that apply to fiat would apply to digital currency. Um, and under normal circumstances. And the legislation in place will support that. I think if you look at those some of those countries that I spoke to, Sweden, Bahamas, uh, 
um, OECS, even China, if you look at how they use the currency, it's the same way. All the rules apply. Government just mm -hmm. can't take your funds. Now, if you know, all the other rules apply too. Like you got to pay your taxes. <laughs> you got to you got to yep. file your taxes. <laughs> right? But don't we have to source of funds? <laughs> Like right, right. But don't we have to make the distinction? And, and you made it um, between a physical fiat currency, meaning a banknote, a coin, um, and a digital bank account like most of us uh, have today. Because that's, for example, um, when we talk about um, Europe or, or Germany more specifically, um, then it, that's one of the reasons why we still, or yeah, why. Um, our well, the population kind of um, pushes back against a lot of, um, yeah, uh, not laws, but kind of, yeah, uh, incentive, or not incentives, but um, basically the, the governments also in, in Germany or in, in Europe try more and more to limit the amount of cash that you can own, that you can pay um, with and so on, because as you said, the physical fiat currency is still not traceable and it's, Again, I mean, let's take the US dollar, for example, it's a global currency. So there are literally yeah, people um, with bags of cash uh, in US dollar right now boarding a plane <laughs> in the US and landing somewhere in the Middle East or in Africa or whatever and pay with that cash for whatever goods and services they are, they are paying for. And I think that is still a big part of the security, anonymity, and not so much dependency of a central bank um, or digital currency, um, because we have that, still have that cash system and that gives a certain amount of security. Everything that you said with it's cheaper without cash and without printing and, and so on, that's, that's true. But I think physical currency, paper money, cash, however you want to call it, is still a kind of guarantee for autonomy, isn't it? It is. Com and, that's, Com and, and that's why I think the hybrid system will mm -hmm. ex exist. So you will have those individuals who think that they need to move funds that they don't want um, to be associated with their um, transactions mm -hmm. for, for whatever reason. It may be a gift. It may be, you know, Whatever the reason is, they're not going to speculate. But I am saying this. Um, how many transactions have you done in the last five years that you um, don't want oversight on? None, but I think that argument is invalid because that's what people always say. Well, if you don't have to, anything to hide, why shouldn't you allow everybody to look? And I say, no, I think privacy maybe again maybe that's because i'm german and we have we have our history with uh, yeah <laughs> all what's happened uh, and i think my grandmother went through at least at least two maybe three um complete collapses of financial systems uh, and so on so i think privacy or the autonomy is still important because if it can be misused it will be misused at some point in time if there is the option for some dictator or a group of people um, to take all the money or you know, to press the delete button or whatever, um, then they will do that at some point in time. 
and uh, I don't have a better example than, than cash money right now, but I think that still prevents it a little bit. And you're absolutely right. I think I probably have never paid amount over 50 euros or 100 euros in, in cash over the last five years. You're, you're absolutely right. I'm a hypocrite here. Um, <laughs> but um, yeah, I still, and I don't want to encourage people to hoard their money in the mattress <laughs> by now. That's also not a smart idea, but just from, from a conceptual and structural standpoint, um, I think I like the idea or the, the notion that you said we will still have all three systems because I think that kind of balances um, and checks everything uh, else out. Um, but I'm, yeah, as soon as someone tells me all the power and all the control is in one entity, I get nervous. So <laughs> do I. Reason. <laughs> so do I. Yeah. I mean, but if you think about what happens right now, um, with the exception of whatever crypto holdings you have, all the power and all the control is in the hands of one entity. You have a central authority. Commercial banks are issued a license by the local central banks. Mm -hmm. And somewhere in that law, because they have uh, sovereign rights over the operating commercial banks, if they ask for the commercial banks for the names and the balances of every single individual in their deposit list what are the rules are you aware of the rules that stops the bank from passing that information i don't know but i know that um, license can be revoked mm -hmm. laws can be amended so here's the thing that i think we need to focus on and let's let's focus on this most of us do legal transactions where we have trading. So we buy goods and services. We, um, we do commercial transactions. We get paid for services that we offer, etc. And most of us have no issues with having those transactions done. You go to the supermarket, you buy your goods, you pay your utility bills, you put some money in the bank for your kids, etc., etc. Um, there's really nothing there. On a commercial side, sometimes we want to affect transactions quickly for one reason or another. We want to expedite something. I think that the systems that will evolve will help us to expedite those goods and services. So I think that's where you see CBDCs, particularly on the cross-border transactions, becoming a lot more pervasive and a lot more effective than they currently are. Commercial banks and settlement banks and uh, etc. They will need to improve what they do significantly if they're going to um, continue to exist. A lot of the hoops and jumps that they have in place. Um, I think are they going to see disappear. In terms of pseudonymity and anonymity, as the global systems evolve, I think we're going to see a lot of that disappearing. I think um, there is a national data database in Europe right now 
that if I wanted um, to open up an account to get a utility service, I can give a utility company short-term access to my account so that they can verify that I am who they say I am. Mm -hmm. Rather than having to give them, you know, sources of ID and everything else, or even to open up my account. So there are services offered that can do that. As we move to AI and IoT in the world, as we are doing today, cryptocurrencies, one, digital currencies, two, are going to become the uh, mass adoption tools for transactions. And everything that you do is going to be linked to your profile. If you want to be off that grid, um, it's going to be very difficult because every service eventually linked through a central authority, through a government, through a national authority is going to have a digital um, aspect to it. They're all going to be bolted together. You want to get a driver's license, you've got to have a digital footprint. You want to have own a house, you want to pay rent, you want to own a utility, you want to buy a car and get it registered. As long as you want to function nationally, I think digital footprints are going to become a critical part. And then your financial trails are going to all converge on that. So I think we need to understand what transactions we want to do off-grid through crypto or use it as an investment tool. And then because we got to understand how the world is going to evolve so that all of those services that we just mentioned are going to start to converge. If you look at what Estonia has done, you can see China and Estonia converging in terms of how all the services from your ID to your voter's card, driver's license, paying a ticket, I mean, everything is just based on one card that you do everything with. And all your services yeah. are connected to that. And I think that, my friend, is the reality of where we are today. So, um, yeah, we will see. You just, it's funny you mentioned, uh, well, first of all, I think Estonia is a great example of how even a small country can, can make use um, of technology and uh, yeah, kind of get the whole country economy regulators everything um, online in a digital realm. Um, but it's funny because I think Germany tried um, to get the driver's license digital so um, you can have it on the wallet and uh, they failed miserably because the app just <laughs> don't, doesn't work um, and yeah we are probably one of the, the richest countries in the world but for some reason when it comes to digital and technology we yeah maybe built great cars but not so much uh, great software yet but maybe that will change um, the vendor the vendor the vendor yeah. Well, the good thing is that they selected IBM for the health passport. So uh, let's hope that what works. G Germany out. or Estonia? Germany. Germany, okay. Germany. <laughs> they work with IBM? I didn't, didn't know that. Yeah, on the, on the digital health passport, the, the European equivalent to European Pass. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah, I think the European Union is also since a few years now a kind of research project for a central bank. Um, digital currency, they are kind of under the radar as far as I, far as I can tell. There's not much news about that. Um, 
but I also think that sooner or later we will see something like that in Europe. I mean, we have a kind of nice situation with the euro and the, the single European payment area, the SEPA system. Mm -hmm. um, but um, yeah, I, when, when I want to start a company uh, in, in Germany, that is a yeah, weeks or a month uh, process till you got all the paperwork done and wow. got your tax number and all that stuff. Um, but as you said, when you go to Estonia, you can literally do that online and uh, in a week you have your bank account, you have your tax number, you have everything you need. Um, so yeah, that's definitely a great example um, how it should and could be done if you Correct. do it right. But, you, uh, but the only thing is that you need to have all the services that support it. So if you don't have the services like ID, uh, where you can verify the IDs, where you can see all of the um, the regulatory documents required in order to make it happen. Mm -hmm. um, it's not going to happen. And I think that's where Germany probably needs to start. So you've got to get those other services in place first and right. then connect it. And then when right. that happens, it becomes a lot easier. So, um, But I'm sure you guys will figure it out when you are set to yeah, I, I think so too. But as you said, it's a huge, a huge project because there are so much uh, moving wheels and moving parts that you have to Correct. get get in line. And yeah, I hope that the new government um, that we will probably get after the elections this Sunday, um, yeah, is a little more into digital and digital transformation and so on. Um, yeah, because you mentioned IoT, Internet of Things, um, a lot of times. I think that is mm -hmm. something that especially. Uh, yeah, industry heavy uh, com uh, country like Germany, where we produce a lot of hardware, we produce a lot of machines, cars, and so on, can really, um, yeah, really benefit and and thrive. You're yeah. a net exporter, so that should be something that you look at. Exactly. IoT yeah. for yeah. logistics. Yeah. yeah, and I think that's also a weird thing. Germany is all, always so proud that we are a net um, exporter where I always say, well, we export all the nice machines and cars and stuff and we get paper money back. I don't know if that is such a long-term uh, great deal when we talk about things like uh, fiat currencies, value um, and so on. Mm. But um, yeah, I think in a lot of things, uh, especially when we combine it with, with blockchain, uh, will yeah, maybe or hopefully solve some of the problems and, and open a completely new industry, basically, as far as I can tell. Well, and there's certainly the opportunity there. Exactly. All, all I'm hearing is opportunity. Yeah, yeah true, true. Do you want to take some questions? Do we have any questions? from? Um, no, I, I hope we don't overwhelm people <laughs> with, <laughs> with all the all the stuff we're talking about. But I don't have any questions um, right now. Um, just comments of our people. Uh, Thank you, Trevor. Like, yeah, it looks like people enjoying um, the conversation and the discourse. But yeah, again, um, everybody watching live right now, um, feel free to put any question that you might have um, in the chat. We're more than happy to answer it. Um, but maybe go go back a little bit. Do you think, I think we talked um, off camera about it, do you think that the Evergrande situation has anything to do with the, the crackdown in China on, on cryptocurrencies? I actually think it does. Um, 
like I said, I, I thought there were three factors that helped this move. Um, one was speculative investment. And I think when we look at speculative investment, the Evergrande situation in China was a key one there. So you have small investors who are investing in cryptocurrency, which is highly speculative, versus Evergrande, which is asset-based investment. So if you were to convert those funds into the Evergrande portfolio, um, they may not have a situation where they're currently at default. That may be the thinking of some. Um, I think that the other issue was the phenomenal amount of energy burn that's happening with cryptocurrency mining in China. Mm -hmm. As I said, they were doing 40% of the global of, of, of the global consumption and momentum of tokens. So I think that that energy burn is a huge concern, particularly when they're trying to reduce the greenhouse gases in an area where the government isn't getting any, any gains or any direct gains. Um, so even though individuals who work in that space and make money from it would then be able to spend it in the economy, there is no direct benefit to the government because most of those individuals can work in other areas and still do the same thing. Right. And then the third aspect was having a, a monopoly on the CBDCs. So I want a digital currency. I've been planning this now for 10 years. And um, I want to be able to uh, roll out my digital currency without having these vectors like Bitcoin and Ethereum and the other altcoins. Um, be a key part of my CBDC product. So I think those are the three areas from where I sit and what I can see mm -hmm. um, that sort of impact. Am I wrong here? But I think China is at least one of the top five Bitcoin holders or maybe top 10, something in, in that area. Um, do you know why that's the case or do we have any idea or speculation about the motivation behind that well the thing about it is in in order to destroy something you need to understand it so <laughs> I, i i think the chinese authorities spend a lot of time with their groups understanding how the whole cryptocurrency ecosystem works and basically what gains they could glean from it And then how do we put out um, a solution, a product that is able to satisfy users who have an interest in this while being able to, um, to advance the centralized authoritarian mindset that we have. So I think any investment or any speculation, like I said, they started in 2014, a year after mm -hmm. cryptocurrency really became something of the market. And the vast majority of us weren't in this space until about 2015, 2016, 2017. Uh, our company did their ICO launch in 2017. Um, so that's how early in terms of adoption the Chinese were in cryptocurrency. So they've got um, um, a lot of hours, a lot of man hours of research and activity. The committee was put together 
they did proof of concept, like I said, in 2020. Um, so I think that for what they're doing and what they're trying to achieve, um, the investment was made probably to make sure that they had all the R&D required. Mm. Yeah, and I think it shows how powerful the technology is or can be if it's able to scare, quote unquote, um, a yeah, government or a big economy like China. Like China. Yeah, Absolutely. Exactly. So I think this, this move sort of backfires a bit because if you're <laughs> trying to scare um, investors away from cryptocurrency, now what they've done is that they've sort of corralled them to go after cryptocurrency even more. Um, because if the government doesn't want it, anyone who's basically opposed to the thinking of the government will migrate more and more towards it. So it becomes more speculative. I mean, because the risk will be higher, I think the price may go up. But I think that it re reinforces that this is a utility that um, has value and has impact. So um, it's like if, like if you have a daughter who likes a guy that you don't like, you never tell her that. <laughs> you never tell her, I don't like this guy for you. <laughs> because automatically she races towards the guy. So, <laughs> so <laughs> this may yeah, be maybe. a similar concept for China. <laughs> yeah, good and bad at the same time. That's yeah. that's true. Um, yeah, Stacey says uh, yeah, she's a little overwhelmed. Yeah, I hope we, we do not jump too quick between... Um, topics, but uh, yeah, I would absolutely agree that it is an important uh, topic, even when we say, well, China is far away from the Caribbean <laughs> or from Europe. I think the implications um, are yeah, very important. And I think it's, a, as I said earlier, I think a kind of experiment that we see um, unfolding right now, on the one hand, the central bank digital currency, and then on the other hand, the, um, yeah, the crypto currencies and yeah we will see um, which one will actually survive well my final comments on this whole thing is look um, this the cryptocurrency market in china isn't going to go anywhere what the government will do is that they will force it underground or force it into a gray market but this is the this is a DeFi market at its best so what we will see is that we will see innovation. We will see um, opportunities for territories like Barbados, Jamaica, Dubai, like I said, et cetera. Other territories that really embrace crypto. Um, taking up a lot of that investment. So we're going to see technologies develop that allow VPNs for investment. There's going to be opportunities for investment outside of China. And I think that the players in the space have to sort of set themselves up that they are recipients of that investment flow. That's number one. Um, number two, I think that the Chinese government has unwittingly opened up um, this whole cryptocurrency market to a lot of individuals who weren't so interested in it before. So this is the best advertisement in the world for cryptocurrency in China. Um, number three, 
I, I think that in the Chinese domestic market, cryptocurrency will not play a major role. But in terms of cross-border transactions or investment tools, it will. And I, I think that's what the government is trying to do anyway, to look at their domestic use of funds more so than anything else. The other thing that you can't do, no matter how hard you try, is that you can't drive individuals, citizens of any kind, to invest in products or projects that you want. Okay. Because investment is built on trust and is built on faith and not built on being dictated to. So I think that, like I said, to open up, that we're gonna see that investment going elsewhere and all that the, um, the other markets need to do is to be able to accept it or work with it as it comes in. Um, those countries are sensitive to Chinese rule of law. Obviously, you may see migration of services from there, so like Hong Kong, etc. cetera. Um, Hong Kong holds some services now. We may see that change in the future. Mm -hmm. um, but certainly, this isn't going anywhere. This is an opportunity for the rest of the world. This is an opportunity for cryptocurrency leaders to move away from proof of work to proof of stake concepts, which are more um, environmentally friendly anyway. Right. And this is an opportunity for the blockchain community in China to now focus their energy on blockchain tools rather than cryptocurrency and grow that space even faster than it's growing right now. Because as we know, when China, uh, when Chinese talent focus on a solution, it sort of explodes on the world stage. So we can see an explosion of blockchain tools and blockchain applications coming out of China, not related directly to cryptocurrency. Um, let me jump into the comments really quick and after that maybe we can talk um, really quick about proof of stake and proof of work because I think it's super important uh, to understand the differences here and uh, I think probably not everybody um, knows the, the difference. Okay. So um, yeah, my wife says uh, getting lost in the conversation, quite fascinating <laughs> Good to hear. And uh, Trevor is laughing. I don't know about what, but uh, yeah, sounds like uh, we are funny over here. And uh, then I have another question. Apart from the KYC laws, what are practical steps a Caribbean country can take to encourage population-wide adoption of digital improvements towards a direction like Estonia, for example? I think, George, I had that question over to you, what can the Caribbean do or can Caribbean countries do to uh, yeah, get, get more improvements or more digital society like Estonia, for example? Well, I have to say that the government in Barbados, and not because I'm biased about Barbados in any way. But the you would never do that. <laughs> <laughs> the government of Barbados has taken incremental steps to roll out a comprehensive digital transformation platform. Um, in, order to, in order to get digital services going and going well, you have to take, first thing, every customer-facing platform that the government offers, you have to do a migration of that information, the data, the services, 
onto an online platform. And in such a way that three things happen. One, users have to be able to use it in any format which they desire. So the hybrid format, if they want to come in person, come in person. If they want to be able to use it on their mobile phones, or if they want to be, be able to use it on their PCs, on the other platform, they need to be able to do that as well. So online and in person, where it becomes um, very easy to do the transaction. So that means all the underpinning information, all the assistance required, all the ABC steps. Once those services are moved individually onto a digital platform, then you can create an ecosystem that embraces all of them. And that's the only way to do it. So you have to get, what are the major services? We determine that there are these seven, there are these 10, there are these 15, etc. We move those services to a digital platform. We have all the connecting support that's required in order to make them easy to use. And then we connect them all into a federated platform and it's linked. So if I change my address um, at the post office, my address changes on every single digital platform right. that's available. My driver's license, my marriage certificate, my, you know, whatever it is. So it is rolling out the services individually and then connecting them. And then once you have that, you have the basis for a digital society. As simple as that sounds. It's simple, sure. <laughs> but I think, well, that would be probably open a complete new discussion. But um, I think that also brings a lot of cybersecurity um, implications or, or, yeah, not to this say a cybersecurity nightmare. Um, but I think that is one of the things um, that maybe especially in the Caribbean um, yeah, has to make sure that uh, because it handles all that sensitive data. Um, that everybody involved can be sure data uh, is safe well, as far as I it can I be. told you something. I, I wrote an article very recently. Mm -hmm. And I wrote an article on um, working from home. This right. hybrid yes. system. Okay. Yeah. More and more so, cloud-based systems. Yep. Working from home is the biggest security nightmare that IT leaders have ever faced right. in their lives. <laughs> um, you've had to open up VPNs and get individuals who may have different uh, platforms and their own D devices and shared networks and um, open systems to handle sensitive data and do work across ecosystems. And as more and more services move to cloud, um, this has become a huge challenge. Um, so what do you do? Systems evolve. Blockchain becomes a very important construct because blockchain is about not having all your information in one centralized space. Basically having it decentralized across multiple databases. And only when you have the key to unlock that information, are you able to converge the databases and see all the and see all the data? So it makes it basically unhackable, and that's one of the one of the beautiful things about blockchain. So as we move to more connected um, IoT, and IoT meaning that 
We are constantly online. Everything is online with a constant flow of information and not um, batch uploads like we're accustomed to in the old days. That, that information is always encrypted. It's always secure. The transactions are what run across the blockchain more so than the databases. So the transactions are what are kept in the hash. The databases are secure, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, what we're, so what we're going to see is highly engaged and advanced security systems that decentralize data and offer a lot more restrictions than we currently see. The biggest problems are cell phones. Okay. <laughs> sometimes, sometimes, yeah. it's, it, sometimes it's very hard to um, restrict access to mobile phones. Right. But, but certainly, um, there are security um, elements in place that can make um, trying to break into a system or determining who has access the critical thing. So, yeah, yeah security is the critical issue. Yeah, and I think that's what most people, not most, but I think a lot of people, yeah, maybe do not get right because I think a lot of people are always afraid of the security of the tech side of things, meaning is it encrypted good enough? And <laughs> as far as I can tell, there's no hash or no IS system or code that has ever been hacked. It's always that someone leaves the password there, or as you said, the phone is unsecured <laughs> and someone can access an account or things like that, meaning social engineering or the human is almost all the time the, the weak spot uh, in a cybersecurity um, environment. Absolutely. So um, people blame the technology, but technology blames the people. The people. Yeah, it's always <laughs> always the user. The problem is always in the other side of the screen. <laughs> Correct. <Right. laughs> yeah, yeah. That's true. Okay, before we um, talk a little bit about proof of stake and proof of work, um, let's maybe um, wrap up the, the question about the digital society. So, um, yeah, what is the financial benefit of having a digital society for an economy? for a single country or in that case uh, when we talk about the caribbean as a whole what do you think all right i mean this one is a simple one um right now whenever we do a transaction in almost every in almost every territory in the region we go to a merchant and um or we send funds through a commercial bank a lot of the times we use debit cards and credit cards so when we use debit cards and credit cards, the current platform that we are operating on is the Visa or the MasterCard network. The Visa or MasterCard network, as you know, is not domiciled in the Caribbean at all. It's held in Canada or the US or Latin America or somewhere. And there are fees that apply. The fees range anywhere from a 2% value on the transaction up to as much as 8 or 10% on the transaction. Um, imagine being able to do that transaction um, and, and the other thing is that the time that the transaction takes so the vendor runs a credit card or debit card transaction and next day they may get the debit card fees in their account but sometimes it takes 48 hours to get the credit card fees in their account okay 
So imagine being able to do that transaction in real time where the transaction fee is fractions of a second. So not a 1% or a 2%, I'm talking 0.0001 of a cent. So that the vendor is able to get all of his money immediately in his account. And, um, and when I say all, we mean all. Rather, you know, the transaction fees are so minuscule. This is where a digital economy makes a huge difference. The other thing is that the local government is able to manage all of its transactions. And those transactions aren't being managed by a third party. That doesn't need to be involved in any domestic transactions whatsoever. It also allows um, for those firms that have GST, um, VAT payments, etc., in their process. The system can be set up that when the transaction is done, VAT payments or GST payments, GCT payments, are made immediately. So you don't have to go through the process of preparing a VAT report every 60 days and then issuing funds and everything else. Those deductions can be made immediately, run by a smart contract put into a system. And then you know that what in, is in your account is your funds and you don't have to send another payment to the government in a month's time to do a reconciliation. And those re reconciliations can be done per account in real time. So there are a lot of benefits involved, speed of transaction, reduction of fees, merging of services, conversion of reconciliations that makes it easier for everyone to transact business. Yeah, I think the, this, the potential cost savings are huge in, in that regard. I mean, as you said, think about it if you have like... 2% of all the transactions that are made in a country, just take 1% um, of that, doesn't flow out of the country through MasterCard or Visa in form of fees, but stays in an economy, stays in a country. The opportunity cost that you're saving in terms of I can do business faster and uh, yeah, I can automate the processes and so on. I think the, the cost savings and uh, yeah, they are huge, especially for economies that do still a lot of stuff, uh, yeah on paper okay. and, and things of that nature. Absolutely. That's right. Yeah. So when we talk about, um, or let's go back to the proof of stake and, and proof of work. When we talked earlier um, about, okay, what kind of cryptocurrency actually is able to function as a currency and not as an investment vehicle or a speculative um, asset class. Um, I think one of the, reasons from a technology standpoint is the proof of stake and proof of work um, concept or the differences because as you said bitcoin is extremely expensive it's slow and so on it has its downsides so maybe you can explain uh yeah, in, in simple terms what is the difference um, between proof of stake uh, proof of work and uh, proof of stake in, in that um in that context and what is the pros and cons of, of both sides maybe okay so Let's look at proof of stake first. Um, basically, proof of stake is low barrier entry for block generation. Um, rewards are given in a system that avoids expensive computation, 
And just understand this. Every time you mint a coin, so every time a transaction is done, a token goes through a minting process to um, make that transaction go live. Most of the platforms use what's called a proof of work. So a proof of work is where a quantum computer or a high-end computer solves the algorithm that's associated with having to mint the tokens. Every transaction, you want to mint a million tokens, there's a request that's sent for this to be for these tokens to go through a minting process, and there's an algorithm associated with it. The algorithm, the process of solving that algorithm um, is farmed out to anyone who wants to mint all over the world. The first person to finish it gets paid. So the faster the computer, the more energy you can burn, the better your systems, the better your teams, the more money you make. Right. So first to the finish line gets paid for minting the tokens and solving that transaction. Now think about it like a queue. All these transactions are queued up. They're farmed out to independent individuals who mint, depending on their systems. The first to the finish line gets paid and the rest just go on to the next transaction once that's done. So in terms of system power, in terms of length of time that it takes, in terms of unfair advantages, in terms of I, I have cheap power and fantastic quantum systems, I get most of the work. That's what's happening in Iceland, some parts of the Ukraine, um, China, and, and, and now some, some energy parts is of the cheap. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So the key thing, cheap energy. <laughs> All right. One, cheap systems, an abundance of IT IQ. All right. So those are the ones who lead the pack in terms of proof of work. Proof of stake, like the one ledger platform, it's consensus space. We have a board of directors in inverted commons, and we have a proof of stake metric where 66% of the board has to agree to do the transaction. Once there is agreement, transaction's done. No mathematical work. Consensus based. One is based on uh, um, a congress and the other one is based on computing power, which has all the attendant negatives associated with it. Pretty simple. And, and who is the who is the board? <laughs> the board are usually investors in the token. So we call them validators, for lack of a better word, but a validator is really an investor. In order to get validator status, you have to have a minimum level of investment. And as long as you get that minimum level of investment, you become a part of the board. And as long as you become part of the board, there's a finite number. So we decide minimum 10 people, maximum 10,000 people. Mm -hmm. And transaction go through, board says yes, bam, done. So but that, that just just to make clear, that process is automated and software based. It's not like that. I have to call George, and you have no. to call your four <laughs> other board members, and you say, "Okay, Simon is able to pay now." <laughs> Correct. So all of this is automated and driven by 
rules of the game in a smart contract. So there's a smart contract that usually underpins how it works. And basically that's how it applies. So it isn't a phone call where you have to lobby like, you know, in the US to get support. (laughs) So, all right. So the transactions are basically guaranteed and automated as long as they hit all the rules that are based in the smart contract. Yeah, which makes it much faster and much cheaper. Basically. Much faster, much cheaper. So we call it gas fees when transactions are yeah. being done. Those gas fees come down exponentially. Right? Now, yeah. proof of staking is obviously not as lucrative as proof of work. Where For the miners, you mean? Exactly. The mm. miners obviously don't make enough money. So yeah. now you become an investor rather than being a worker. So... So in order to get to a proof of stake platform, invest some funds into a token, <laughs> all right? Enough that you become a validator. And then once you're in validation process, the fees that you make from those transactions, which are considerably less, now you will get a gain from that. Mm-hmm. That'll be split across the community and the validators yeah. who do it. So that's the difference between the two. Have you heard about the, I think it happened in the last few days, and I think it was Ethereum, not Bitcoin, where one miner got for one transaction millions, I think 12 million US dollar or something uh, in, in gas fees, or I think he he paid something back or do you, you heard about it? Can you, can you explain what happened there? Because I'm not I, yeah, I can't, expert I can't, I can't tell you a lot about it, but I heard some of the team members discussing it. So I can't okay. tell you, I can't tell you the details. Don't know the details. Yeah, me, me but, neither. I just heard but it. But what I do know is that there are 14-year-olds who are quitting school, and the parents are um, supporting the effort. Where all they do is mine tokens, and they make half million dollars a year, million dollars a year. So if you can make half million dollars a transaction based on whatever system you have, that's yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's why people buying graphics cards and PS5s all over the world and not to play with it, but to, to mine uh, cryptocurrencies with it by now. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, f- for those who are interested, Robert Greenfield IV actually um, wrote a very good article on proof of work and proof of stake and um, vulnerabilities associated with it. So if you have some time, you may want to just look at that document and it gives a really simplified understanding of the two and then does a comparative analysis as well. All right. Why so I thought that was a great article. Can, can you repeat it? What is the name of the article and the author? The, the name of the author is Robert Greenfield IV. And the title of the article is Vulnerability, Proof of Work, versus proof of stake okay so we'll check that out and everybody listening um, if you're interested in the fiat currency system and you want to learn more about that you might also want to check out the website wtf happened 1971 um, <laughs> which gives you a little bit more background information about what happened after the gold standard uh, yeah was dropped um, and all the implications of yeah very interesting Uh, topic if you want to dive deeper into monetary systems, fiat currencies, and so on. And uh, yeah, that helps 
probably a lot to understand more why it is so important or why cryptocurrencies and so on are so powerful and uh, yeah why some governments or some regulators are so afraid of it because you know, whoever controls the money uh, controls the people or holds a lot of power that's right yeah. <laughs> So um, for everybody watching, I think we are wrapping up soon. So if you have any questions, um, yeah, make sure to drop them now. I think we'll stay on for a few more minutes. But if you have a question that you want to get answered by George or by myself, make sure to drop it now. Now, um, yeah, you have the opportunity to catch both of us live. <laughs> um, but yeah, I was asking a lot of questions or talking a lot. Is there anything from your side uh, that we maybe didn't touch on that you want to talk about or think is important? Well, <clears throat> one of the things that I would really like to see small, independent, developing states do is to find ways to get more control or better control, particularly of their domestic fiscal systems. Now, there's a lot of misunderstanding, mistrust, etc. Um, small developing states usually have their own currency. So they have a national currency, so native currency. The currency really has value twofold. One, it's used for domestic transactions. And, there's, and in my mind, there is less and less of a need to have those currencies, that, that fiat currency used for local transactions. There are a lot of individuals who are unbanked and underbanked in those territories. Right. and who fall outside of uh, any fiscal system. So it's hard to get a good read on what the real size of the economy is if you just look at the metrics, GNP, etc. Um, digital systems will allow for a better um, understanding and a better metric of domestic transaction value and uh, and domestic transaction um, space. That's one. Number two, those currencies are almost, almost have no value outside the country. So you can't take a Eastern Caribbean dollar and go into Germany and walk into a German bank and get marks for it or get a euro for it. Right. Yeah. Could be complicated, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you can't take the Jamaican dollar and walk into any bank, even some banks in the Caribbean don't take the Jamaican dollar. So the question is, why does Jamaica still produce a dollar? Why does Jamaica go through the process of printing money in Sweden? Having it flown into country to be circulated only in country. It has no value outside of Jamaica at all, none, zero. And there's a cost associated with every single aspect of it. It doesn't change your exchange rate against major, major exchanges, major currencies. So um, the arbitrage is the same. So the traders make the same in terms of what they do transactions. 
but the physical currency really has no value whatsoever. It's dead. It's only used as a local instrument. What is the harm in, in removing the physical currency and migrating completely to digital currency? And I, and I think that's where we should start to look. There's no harm. It's only amongst your citizens where this currency is being traded. And you get a better bead on what's actually happening in your market. So I think that's small, independent, developing states should take a serious look at moving away from fiat and all of the attendant negatives that come with it and looking at having a digital currency. CBDC or by some local regulator that's trusted, etc. That's your choice. Number one. Number two. Um, in almost every local jurisdiction now, external banks are using Visa and MasterCard to run debit platforms. So local settlement exchanges for ACH, for RTGS are being overlooked and the global Visa and Master network are being used for transactions. There is no value at all to local institutions, local merchants, local banks and citizens to be using a global platform that they pay fees to in a domestic environment. No value. I, I can see no value whatsoever in terms of local transactions whatsoever. None. International transactions, as a matter of course, yes, because you want the PCI compliant with all the attendant security that that brings for FX transactions, etc. But in a local environment, no value whatsoever. So I think this, these two areas should be looked at closely by all small developing states. Take a leap from China's book in this regard. Only in this regard. There is no value in having your local transactions farmed out to an international institution that you pay to do those same local transactions that can be done effectively in your territory. So that's one of the things that I think that this whole China construct brings to the surface. Yeah, and I think you explained it uh, perfectly because when I was talking, Stacey didn't understand anything. So uh, now she says, now I can understand where the digital and cryptocurrencies come into play. Jamaican dollars have no value and cannot be used outside of Jamaica. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's one of the major problems that we're having right now. Yeah. So there is there is no need to have it outside of <laughs> Jamaica. And there is no need to have it in Jamaica because there's a cost to having it in Jamaica. Yeah. So, um, so I think there's a strong argument that can be made for migration to CBDCs for small island developing states and for small developing states yeah. who don't need to have external partners or third parties involved in domestic transactions whatsoever. All they do is incur costs. That's not required though. Mm -hmm. 
maybe something a little hard turn left now. <laughs> what what do you think in terms of the US? I'm just thinking about that right now because the US is the world or the US dollar is the world's leading um, currency and therefore what are the implications there or do you know anything? Are they planning their own digital dollar or, or something like that? Are there any yeah any uh, actually uh, any movements in that way? Miami has issued a digital currency. So Miami? the city of Miami, the okay. city of Miami, have issued their own digital currency. There has been speculation for a long time, and the Feds have been taking a look at um, a CBDC for the U.S. government. I don't think they're going to be um, averse to it, um, but I think that with the um, if, let me use the right term. If the maturity of the leadership at, at the Fed right now, um, I don't think you're going to see any rapid movement towards a federal CBDC. But you may see state by state, city by city, using digital currencies for one reason or another. So um, the federalist system that we have in Germany you may see states or cities like Miami continue to exploit the, um, the opportunities that come with the digital currency rather than having cash, especially in states where you have a lot of um, crime and cash-based crime. So imagine where we, this old scene of someone robbing a liquor store of their cash or robbing a grocery store. Right, right, right. If you reduce the movement of cash, or you reduce, you contract the amount of cash in the marketplace significantly, um, then you reduce the risk of individuals who think that they can rob. So cash in transit, mm -hmm. robbery goes down, where you have armored trucks moving large amounts of cash. Um, let me give you an example where we worked with a company called Carter out of Canada in Papua New, New, New Guinea. Mm -hmm. um, the workers at a construction site, or sorry, at a mine, were paid every week. The paymaster would go into a, a caged um, facility, lock himself in. A helicopter would fly over and drop a bag of cash through a skylight. He would then lock the skylight and the workers from the mine would come up to the window and get paid in cash. Wow. When all the money was gone, the paymaster would unlock and go and come back next week. So what we did with Carter is that we issued prepaid cards to all of the miners. And the mining company from their offices in Dubai they were able to upload the funds every single week. And then the miners would just go to an ATM and take what they need. So imagine the same thing I mean, in the digital platform. We don't even have to go through an ABM. If they were able right. to get the cash either on a card 
or the cash on the phone, and then they can use it to trade. So a cash-only market brings a significant amount of risk. Yeah, absolutely. And I have to admit, I never really thought about that aspect. Um, but yeah, as Aline says, um, digital currency has the potential to reduce petty crime. And I think especially countries like Jamaica, where you have yeah, high crime rates um, and so on. Everywhere. Uh, everywhere, uh, absolutely. Um, yeah, the reduction of, of free flow of cash um, will definitely uh, have an impact on the crime rates. That's because I was thinking, why why should Jam uh, not Jamaica, but why should Miami um, mint their own uh, digital currency? What is the, the real benefit here? But yeah, sure, from that standpoint, um, absolutely. In, and I encourage um, anyone who's listening to do a Google search and look at the rationale behind why the city of Miami thought it was important that they have a digital currency. Mm. even though this is not something that's supported by the federal government. Yeah, yeah interesting times. And I think when we talk in a few years from now um, about the same topics, uh, yeah, it will be probably interesting to see how all that stuff develops. Um, but uh, yeah, I think again, um, as you said earlier on China, um, realized very early on in the process uh, the, the power and the implications um, of blockchain um, of crypto and was one of the first movers and i think um, yeah other countries uh, will follow and countries governments in general um, have to understand will understand that blockchain has the potential and don't say it will and i don't say it has to but it has the potential to render the money system and even countries and governments as we know today pointless because when we also look at others and things like Davos and so on um yeah so i think uh we're well, looking into very just, interesting times i just what want us to get our um or language right blockchain is blockchain cryptocurrency runs on blockchain yeah, so, absolutely. Sorry, right. did, I, did, I, did I switch the terms here? No, yes. no absolutely. Right. Sorry, my, so, my mistake. All right, so cryptocurrency can have a huge impact. Blockchain, I think, is the future in terms exactly. of being able to make transactions, um, uh, to have all transactions have a high degree of assurance. Yeah, right. Okay, so I think, yeah, obviously my brain capacity um, is at its maximum right now. We went over the two hour mark, so I think that's a good um, point to wrap it up. For everybody listening uh, and watching right now, um, yeah, if you enjoyed it, the best way to support the show, support the program is to yeah, give it a like, um, subscribe to the YouTube channel, um, connect with us on LinkedIn, and of course, share it to everybody um, that might be interested in the topic and uh, yeah spread the word and um, yeah I think that's it for today anything to add from your side George no I think that was quite comprehensive all right perfect then um, yeah everybody watching have a good day and I hope to see you soon <laughs>